Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. I'm your host, Aram Layton, and I hope you enjoyed the first episode on Tuesday. This episode will be a little bit different. I had a guest this time. It's Marlins radio voice of 13 years, Glenn Geffner, actually going on his 13th season this year. Uh, really fun interview. Excited for you guys to hear that. Really nice guy. Tons of insight on the team. A really good baseball mind. And if you've never tuned into a radio game, I highly suggest just changing it up here and there. Of course, love the guys. Love Seve. Love Hollinsworth on TV. But it's always nice to change it up. And he is really good on the radio is Glenn Geffner. And you'll get a little taste of that on the podcast in a few minutes. We dove deep into this Marlins roster going into spring training. He had a lot of insight on that. And of course, talked a little bit about those 08-09 Marlins teams. One of my personal favorites, excluding the World Series team in 03. But those 08-09 Marlins teams that competed for a wild card spot were pretty darn fun to watch. There's hope that the Marlins will look a little bit like those 08-09 teams this year with the young talent starting to make its way through, getting close to MLB ready, including a couple solid veterans added to the team as well. It could be exciting. But the entire NL East is going to be incredible. That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes and just highlighting the fact that it was already one of the best divisions in baseball, and now every team seemingly loaded up even more. I'll start with the Phillies. I think the Phillies have made the biggest splash again. They're typically the loudest. At least the last two off seasons, they've been the loudest. Of course, Bryce Harper last year. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to success. Uh, it, they're hoping it does this year. They ended up giving Zach Wheeler what I thought was a massive overpay, but they wanted to get their big pitcher. They got him. And they also went out and got D.D. Gregorius, who you know, probably won't put up the same type of numbers he put up in New York, but he's still a great option at shortstop. And you can only say that the Phillies got better. I mean, it would be ridiculous to say that they didn't get better by going and getting Zach Wheeler and going and getting D.D. Gregorius. The Phillies are going all in. It's pretty obvious. And they've got a, a lot of money tied up between just a few guys, just between Zach Wheeler and Bryce Harper alone. If Wheeler doesn't pan out. They're going to be on the hook for five years, a couple hundred million dollars, and we'll see how that goes. But Wheeler, coming off a career year, is trying to keep that momentum going into Philly. And that'll sting for the Mets losing Wheeler. They made some replacements, though, and they were able to at least bolster the rotation a little bit more. I think getting Stroman at the end of last year uh, made Wheeler a little bit more expendable. And then they were able to go get Porcello. Of course, he's not nearly as good as Wheeler, but he still fills a void in the back end of the rotation. And they have about six, seven, eight arms that could all compete for a spot in that five-man rotation. Maybe they'll go with a six-man rotation. Though I don't love the idea of having an extra game between DeGrom starts. I mean, you want that guy starting as frequently as possible. But the Mets have some sorting out to do. It's a good problem to have a deep rotation now. Steven Matz, if he's healthy, is a great option. I'm still waiting for him to really break out, but he's battled some elbow and arm issues through the years. And they added Michael Waka to go with Rick Porcello. Those two guys could be battling it out for a fifth spot in the rotation. And then the one-two punch of DeGrom and Syndergaard at the top is going to be really good. And I think Edwin Diaz is going to put it together this year. He seemed like one of the most unlucky pitchers in baseball last year. And the year before that, he was the best closer in baseball. And Dellen Batances, too. He was roughed up a little bit last year, but the potential to be one of the best back-end arms in the league. So a very volatile bullpen, I think. A pretty volatile bottom half of the rotation. But a bullpen that could either be terrible or be elite. So it'll be very fascinating to watch the Mets. And then you look at their offense. If Cespedes is healthy, that's an addition. Even if he doesn't play every day, that's a power bat that can hit 30-plus home runs. Probably not at this point anymore, maybe 20-plus. And even if he plays 80, 90 games, 100 games for you and is a big bat off the bench, that's a big win. That's something they didn't have last year. And they went and got Jake Marisnik, and that's not much offensive help, but one of the best defensive outfielders in the game. So the Mets are looking to keep improving, and we'll see how that goes this year. Another team that's really scary and loaded up a little bit more is the Atlanta Braves. Ronald Acuna Jr. is only going to get better. Ozzie Albies, two of the best young players in the game. And they added Marcelo Zuna, who was banged up the last couple years. Still a productive bat, a big power bat. It's been sad to see the defense regress because he really was a 
a great defender in his time with the Marlins with a rocket for an arm, but his shoulders really regressed on him, and he's not the same guy out there, but the bat is still there for Marcel, and just even more power to this lethal lineup. And an unsung signing, I think, is the addition of Cole Hamels. Cole Hamels is obviously not what he was when he was in Philadelphia, but Cole Hamels is a guy that's still competitive out there. He's still a good pitcher, and if you're talking about Cole Hamels as your number four, With that lineup, I'll take that every day of the week. They bolstered the bullpen a little bit, added Shane Green at the end of last year, Will Smith. This is a scary team, and this is not a team you want to run into in the playoffs. They showed their youth this past season, but I think they're going to be geared up and ready to go. And Austin Riley getting a full season now in the bigs too. The Braves definitely scare me. But you can't forget about the defending champs. That's the crazy thing. They haven't had as good of an offseason as these other teams, but... They're the defending freaking champs. The Washington Nationals are the team to beat in the NL East, no matter how you cut it. Does losing Anthony Rendon hurt? Of course it does. He's one of the best third basemen, one of the best players in the game. But Juan Soto, only going to get better. Victor Robles, same story over there. Another young guy with a year under his belt. That's terrifying. That young outfield, people were worried about when Bryce Harper left that the outfield wouldn't be the same. And they answered that question with a World Series. Now... People are worried that the hot corner won't be the same, but I think they can fill that void too, especially if Carter Keyboom can come up pretty quickly and show that he's major league ready. But if not, they have their insurance policy. Old friend Starlin Castro, he's a very competent hitter out there. He can play third base, and he was really good in the second half of the Marlins, a really tough first half. But he put it together in the second half, and I think hitting in a better lineup with more protection and probably towards the bottom of the order instead of hitting third and fourth like he did so frequently with the Marlins, he could be a lot more productive and there might not be a reason to rush Kibum. And then you look at first base, the platoon of Ryan Zimmerman and Eric Thames fascinates me. It's not sexy, but Zimmerman mashes lefties, Thames mashes righties, and this could be a really nice duo that splits it down the middle against southpaws versus right-handers and both do damage and they're just set up for success on a daily basis. And then Sean Doolittle in the back of the bullpen. The other Will Harris added there, Daniel Hudson. It's a good bullpen that improved a little bit. They could still use probably an arm or two. And Kurt Suzuki and Jan Gomes behind the dish. Nothing too special back there, but this is a team that's still good. Howie Kendrick coming back, a really good addition for them too. And regardless, even if Key Boom comes up, you know Starling Castro is going to be splitting time with Kendrick because for some reason they do not like to play Kendrick every day. And he was really good when he was limited in action. So whatever they're doing, it's working for them. And they're the team to beat, bottom line, point blank period. And it's going to be interesting to see how all the teams in the NL East stack up because it's pretty feasible to think that the NL East could send three teams to the postseason. That's not that ridiculous to say. But it's not like the Marlins just sat around and watched everyone else improve. The Marlins made moves of their own. And I talked about those plenty with Glenn Geffner, who you will hear from on the other side of this break. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Locked On to reach sports fans. But you may not know that Locked On Marlins is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Marlins fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. Not just any podcast listener, a Locked On podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Marlins fans and a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on the Locked On Podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses. Text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com backslash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve Locked On advertising success. Once again, text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com backslash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. Marlins radio voice Glenn Geffner joining me here now on the podcast. Glenn, thank you for coming on. This is actually round two, full disclosure. We had some technical get difficulties the first time. So thank you for carving out so much time for me today. And I'm excited to get back at it and talk some more Marlins with you. Yeah, I've been on your end of the technical difficulties, so I have an appreciation for what you're going through. No problem at all. Happy to do it again. Yeah, talk a little bit about your end of the technical difficulties for anyone that uh, is going through, going into a career and um, 
sports journalism, journalism in general, sometimes it's scary when you mess some mess something up, especially with a, a big name guy. Well, you and I had a great conversation a little bit earlier today that unfortunately, for some technical reason, didn't record. And uh, here we are doing it again, but that's fine. Uh, opening day 2007, I was doing radio for the Boston Red Sox. And one of my responsibilities was getting the pregame interview with the manager, Terry Francona. I uh, went downstairs hours before the game, as you typically would. Had a great conversation with the manager on opening day. Always a hectic day for everybody with so much media and then all the pomp and circumstance and the pageantry. Uh, I got back upstairs, and at some point, probably about an hour and 15 minutes before the end, somebody realized our conversation hadn't recorded. It was an issue with the digital recorder I had been using. So I had to go back down to Tito's office at Fenway, and at this point, about an hour before first pitch on opening day of all days, had to ask the manager to do it again. He was very gracious. We did it again. It was even better the second time, so that bodes well for us. So Francona, nice guy. That's uh, the moral of the story there, too. Exactly. And uh, we, we play it on. We play it forward here today. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. And another nice guy, Don Mattingly, of course, he's been a lot of fun to to talk to uh, during the seasons the last few years. But you've seen a ton of coaches through your 13 plus years with the Marlins. And I'm sure all are a little bit different interacting with. But uh, you started right around. It was uh, you, you said right around the Miggy trade. You took the job right before that. Uh, so the team right around 2005, 2006, was a young team. But you ended up seeing some of the more exciting teams that the Marlins have had in the year history. We talked about it before where this might be one of the first years in a while where the team has that young excitement again. Where does this upcoming season rank for you in relation to 08, 09, those surprising young teams too? Do you see a little bit of this team uh, or that team in this team? Well, I hope so, and I hope this team in 2020 is able to have success those 08 and 09 teams did the last two Marlins teams to finish with winning records. But I really think if you look at the young talent that could be arriving in the major leagues for the Marlins this year, uh, overall that talent has the potential to be even better than the talent that was here in 08 and 09. And there's some great talent here in 08 and 09. Those are the very early years. Josh Jackson and Ricky Velasco, Henry Ramirez. You had on that team in 08, Jorge Cantillo, he was a more veteran guy, but uh, Dan Ugla and Josh Willingham, Mike Jacobs, Matt Trainer, guys like that. Uh, so you're right. I took the job, I believe it was announced in January of 2008. And a few days, uh, I guess just before that was when they had announced they were trading Miguel Cabrera to the Tigers. Uh, you started a whole new chapter of Marlins baseball with that deal. And I kind of feel like we're starting a whole new chapter this year where uh, for me, I think the excitement level going to Jupiter in a couple of weeks is probably as high going into this spring as any spring since 2012, when you had the new ballpark on the horizon, where the Marlins had made the huge splashes in free agency that we now know didn't pan out in 2012. But there was a lot of local excitement, a lot of national excitement about that Marlins team in 2012 on the cover of Sports Illustrated before the start of the season. Uh, you had Tyler Kepner in the New York Times picking the Marlins to win the World Series that year. It didn't play out, but uh, here I really feel like while this is year three of this buildup under the new ownership, uh, it's not just a new year that we're starting. I feel like we're turning a page, really starting a new chapter in this buildup process because this is the year where a lot of the young talent we've been hearing about is going to finally get a chance to reach the major leagues. Not all of it, but uh, we saw some of it come up last year. We'll see a lot more of it this year. We'll see more of it in 2021 and beyond. But uh, this is the year you hope some of the young guns we've been talking a lot about are going to finally make a splash up here. Yeah, 2012 was a, a roller coaster of emotions for me as a, as a young Marlins fan at the time. You know, you had all of the free agency signings, you know, Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, Heath Bell, even in you're getting so excited. I remember it was just like the first time. And almost oh my Albert goodness. Pujols on top of all that. Almost Albert Pujols. Pujols. And Marlins dodged a bullet there. <laughs> I remember, and I love Albert Pujols, but that contract, of course, ended up becoming a little bit of a nightmare for Anaheim. Or not Anaheim now, but the Angels. Anaheim at the time. And it was this first time where I'm like, my goodness, the Marlins are spending money. This is crazy. You know, this team's going to be amazing in the new stadium. And that first opening day in, in Marlins Park, it was electric. It was on ESPN. It was sold out. It felt like a, a playoff game. And then it just went downhill from there. Uh, you had that 
that excitement going into the year. But with how disappointing that team was, I think they only, they they didn't crack seventy wins, if I'm not mistaken, right? They they were in the sixties, high sixties. How, how hard was that season in comparison to like some of the last couple where the Marlins lose hundred games, but your expectations were already kind of low? Yeah, you make a great point there, Arm, and you're right. It's harder to go into a year with high expectations and see the season fizzle than it is to go into a year like the last couple where realistically we knew what it was going to look like. And we understand that you're going to take some lumps along the way. You're also in the toughest division in baseball. Uh, so that certainly hasn't helped at all. But uh, it's easier to go through a season like that. It's not fun to go through a season like that, but it's easier when you know what it's going to be like going in and when you have a plan, basically, about how you go about things and you're looking for the small victories, and you're looking for the progress and the growth and, uh, you know, the occasional uh, walk-off win in dramatic fashion is even more exciting on a team like that in a season like the last couple than it might be in a year where you had very high hopes going in and things just unravel. You look at uh, the Phillies the last couple of years. You look at the Mets in recent years. In many respects, while both those teams won more games than the Marlins the last two years, their seasons were much more frustrating, and uh, whether you're a broadcaster or a fan or a player, in many respects, had to leave you with a much worse case in your mouth than with the Marlins doing, because the Marlins realize you're building something. You're on the way up, and uh, you go into the season realistically. Now, that said, we go into this season realistically, hoping that it's going to be much better than the last couple of years. And to think this season uh, did a chance for a playoff spot in 2020, quite honestly, that might be asked a little bit much, but after winning 57 games last year, you'd like to think you can add a, a pretty good number to that win total this year. Um, it's be interesting, be much more competitive, and uh, be much more with Thorne inside of the rest of the division, the rest of the league, the Mons have in the last couple of seasons. And it's interesting because Vegas has the over-under for Marlins wins at 64 and a half, roughly, depends on the sports book, give or take a, a win or two. Uh, that's not that much of a jump for from what the Marlins were last year. And no, in terms of honestly, roster, I think that would be a disappointment. If this team finished yeah. with 64 wins with the additions they've made and with the growth you hope to see from some of the young players you've already seen up here, uh, 64 and 98 would have to be a disappointment. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm not guaranteeing 90 wins or 80 wins, but uh, you'd like to think this team can take a big step forward. Absolutely. And there's something just uh, when, when you're in the 70s, I think just the season's much more. Uh, watchable, a lot more competitive. Something about being in the 60s just doesn't bode well. And that's what's surprising to me. Of course, you hit uh, on a point earlier about the fact that the NL East could very well be the best division in baseball, if not one of the best. And every team besides the Marlins is is ready to compete for the postseason. But And they expect uh, to, yep. Yeah, and expect to. They're all in, honestly, there could be a crazy scenario where four teams in the NL East make the postseason, or three teams uh, in the NLEs make the postseason rather. Um, but and that that wouldn't shock me if if two wild card teams come out from the NL East. But the the thing with the Marlins is you you pointed out they have to play over 70 times against that NL East division and that's going to be tough. But to me I think 64 and a half wins is an easy over. You'd like to think this team wins more than 64 games. Again, we started talking about the 08 and 09 teams. The difference or one of the differences that the Marlins face now is you go back to 2008, and while the Phillies were just beginning their great run atop the division and atop the National League, the rest of the National League East wasn't nearly as strong at 08 and 09 as it is now. And it is really the best division of baseball. You've got the defending World Series champs, the Nationals, the Braves, and the team that have won the division the last two years. The Phillies expect to win this year. I think if they don't win, there's going to be uh, more heads rolling in Philadelphia. You've already had a managerial change there. Uh, the Mets expect to win again this year. So, uh, you know, you look at the starting pitchers you face night in, night out in this position. If you're a young hitter on this Marlins club trying to establish yourself in the big leagues, there are no easy nights. If you're a young pitcher trying to establish yourself in the big leagues against the lineups in this division, there are no easy nights. And those are 76 of the 162 games the Marlins play, yeah, nearly half the schedule. Against teams, so they've got to play better against those games. They have to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they played the Phillies strangely well. Uh, this past year. So we'll see if that continues into next season. Uh, but before we, we talk about the, this team a little bit more in terms of like the last 13 or 12 seasons now going into season number 13, what are some of your favorite memories uh, with some of the, that 08, 09 team, you know, the whole infield 
hitting over 25 home runs. Were there any, is there anything that really stands out to you? Of course, D Gordon's home run. What was that like after Jose Fernandez passed away calling that? Uh, what, what moment stands out to you the most in your career with the Marlins? Well, you mentioned Jose's name and uh, Jose is at the top of the list and at the bottom of the list for sure. You're watching Jose every five days for that brief period of time, we were able to watch him uh, for me stands head and shoulders above anything else that, uh, I've seen during my time here, seeing the, the way he attacked his job on the mound, seeing the way he attacked life, the constant smile on his face, the passion, the, the energy that he brought that was so contagious, it really rubbed off on everybody. You woke up with a smile on your face when you knew Jose was going to be on the mound that night. You knew you had a chance to do something very special at the ballpark, no matter who was on the other side. And uh, that, for me, is probably highlight number one of this, but hopefully – we can start talking about the postseason games at some point before too long because those ought to be the highlights. But watching Jose do what he did uh, stands at the top of the list for me. And then at the bottom is the way things ended for Jose, obviously. And that night coming back against the Mets uh, to play after what had happened and uh, the emotion, Dave and I literally crying on the air. Uh, mm-hmm. You couldn't help but break into tears just describing what we were seeing down on the field uh, and realize he still had a week left of the season where, you know, in many respects, it was great that all the guys had themselves, they were together to be around each other, uh, to help get through this very, very challenging time. But at the same time, if we'd had another two months or three months to go, I'm not sure how anybody could have made it, because by the time that final week was over, it was time for everybody to go home and and be with their wives and their kids and their families uh, and, and just get away and try to move on a little bit because it was such an emotional time for everybody. So uh, Jose's at the top of the list and at the bottom of the list, uh, happily and unhappily for me. Absolutely. And and that that's probably I, from everyone I've, I've heard from, whether it was an interview on TV or whatever it was, anyone that was covering that game said it was just impossible to, to keep the emotions in check. And I don't even think anybody watching or listening to the game wanted you to, I think it was, it made it, you know, very real and very authentic. And, uh, now looking at this team, though, you know, you look at a guy like Jose, who was so likable, uh, just a fan favorite. You said fans came out to see him to see something special. And now some of that young talent starting to get closer to the big leagues. And I'm not saying anyone's going to be Jose Fernandez. I don't think anyone will ever fill that void. He could have been one of the greatest of all time. But the Marlins have a lot of really good young talent type of guys that you build a franchise around coming up. And the first guy that comes to my mind is Sixto Sanchez. He looks like a top of the rotation arm. If he wasn't, you know, that would probably be a disappointment. And he's a guy that could end up, you know, being electric and being exciting. And he's he's one of the guys I'm looking forward to. I'm sure you are as well. Who else are you really looking forward to out of those young guys, that young crop of players, to eventually make their debut? Well, there are a lot of them, and, and I don't want to leave anybody out, but just when you think about the players who we could see in the big leagues at some point in 2020, uh, Sanchez, who still is only 21 years old, probably has to top that list, but there are other arms behind him, like George Guzman and Edward Cabrera, who've had a lot of success in the minor leagues and have tremendous stuff. Maybe not the combination of stuff and polish and command and control that Sixto has shown to this point in his career, but very high ceilings. Uh, you know, you look at some of the position players, Jazz Chisholm, uh, who a lot of people are very excited about, the dynamic talent at shortstop. You think about a young Hanley Ramirez when he first came up, the speed, the power, the flair with which uh, Hanley played the game in the early part of his career. Chisholm's got a chance to be like that. He's got a great name. I mean, the name itself ought to sell tickets and in jerseys. It ought to be fun to talk about Jazz Chisholm well, once he gets up here. Jesus Sanchez we'll see in the outfit. I think we're going to see Lewin Diaz at first base at some point this year. He came over in the Sergio Romo trade at the deadline last year. Big lefty hitting power bat, a really good glove at first base. So, you know, I don't think there are many teams in baseball that can sit here in late January and rattle off that many names and say these guys ought to all be in the big leagues at some point in 2020, and they all have a chance to make a huge impact over the next several years. And that's a really exciting part because the the farm system as a whole, prospects, of course, are volatile. That's just the fact of the matter. Not every single prospect is going to hit, unfortunately. But the fact that the Marlins have so many options, so many high-ceiling guys, uh, some of them are going to hit, and some of them are going to be 
parts of the franchise for a long time and big parts of this rebuild. And the fact that there's so much depth with their prospects now, just, you know, it just gives them a, such a good shot to have some of those cornerstones to build around. And the farm system just a few years ago, the improvement is, is incredible. James Nelson, who was just shipped out to New York, uh, was at one time probably the most exciting player in the Marlins farm system. And of course he hit the wall a little bit, but it just shows how far the farm system has come. If you go back and look at some of the guys that were considered to be the top prospects in the Marlins system now are buried outside of the top 30. And some of that has to do with uh, regressing in, in performance, but some of that just has to do with the fact that the Marlins have totally stockpiled prospects in a way that we probably have never seen before with this franchise. And it's what you need to do to not just win once, but to sustain success over several years. And uh, we've talked about the waves of talent they're bringing along. We've seen a handful of players reach the major leagues already. Sandy Alcantara, for example, Isan Diaz, for example. Uh, and there are more who are going to get here at the start of 2020. Others who might arrive mid-season or in September of 2020. Some might not get here till 2021 or 2022. But the idea is to have talent all around the horn at the big league level, to look down at AAA and have people nipping at the heels of the people in the big leagues, to have players in Jacksonville at AA coming for the guys in Wichita at AAA, and to have guys in Jupiter who are right on the heels of the people who are in AA at that point. So uh, that's what you're really beginning to see. And this is year three of this process. It really is remarkable when you consider what the farm system looked like uh, at this time three years ago and what it looks like right now. Uh, you mentioned it. You know, go back and look at the top 30 prospect lists for this team in 2016, 2017, and compare them to today where you have five consensus top 100 MLB prospects. Every list you see has five Marlins on it, and uh, Marlins are one of only a handful of teams in baseball with that many top 100 prospects. And as you said, they're not all going to hit. There's no question. There'll be injuries. There'll be players who, for one reason or another, just don't put it all together. But you'd rather have 20 guys who you think have a really good chance to be big-time stars in the big leagues and have many of them miss than have three guys and have many of them miss. And uh, this franchise has put itself in a position now. Uh, and then on top of that, with the additions they've made of some of the veteran players they've brought in this offseason, not just good clubhouse contributors and not just people who can be good influences and role models for younger players, but players who can make a legitimate big-time contribution in 2020. Uh, it's going to be fun to watch Jesus Aguilar. It's going to be fun to watch Jonathan Villar. It's going to be fun to watch Corey Dickerson and Matt Joyce and Brandon Kinsler, guys like that who are going to have a, a big part on this team this year and hopefully make them all dramatically better than they were a year ago. And at the same time, they're not blocking any of the younger players who at some point in the next year or two are coming for their jobs. And that's that's the thing about the Marlins team this year that's a little different and a little bit more exciting is that there's major league talent that we're going to get a chance to see this year that really makes the team different and to look forward to. Jonathan Villar, a dynamic player. Corey Dickerson, a guy that's just been consistent his entire career. Uh, is there a guy that the Marlins added that you're most excited to call day in and day out and watch play I mean Dickerson for what he's been able to do the last six years banged up last year but just you can pretty much count on him for 280 to 300 average and 15 to 25 home runs every year uh, from the left side and that's valuable and then VR of course pretty close to a five-tool player and Aguilar is a bounce back candidate is there anyone that you you're most excited about to watch day in and day out go about their work if I had to pick one of those guys, I would most likely say VR because you see him slotting in as a leadoff hitter in this lineup in 2020. And because he's a guy who's got speed, who's got some power, 40 stolen bases for a team that didn't run much last year, 24 homers for a team that didn't hit many home runs last year, but he's also a pretty good table setter. He can really impact the rest of the lineup, I think, uh, more so out of that leadoff spot. When you look at the offense last year, uh, at or near the bottom of Major League Baseball in virtually every single offensive category, you really didn't have a prototypical leadoff hitter. You didn't have somebody who slotted in perfectly as number three hitter or as number four hitter. I think this year you've got some players who you can use in defined roles a little bit more. And DR at the top of the lineup most likely uh, is probably at the top of that list. So he can make a big impact. When you've got speed at a leadoff spot, that's great. When you've got power at a leadoff spot, that's a, a luxury not a lot of teams have as well. And he ought to be a lot of fun to watch. He's a guy who played all 162 last year also. And while some of these other players, Dickerson, for example, had some health issues last year, 
Uh, Aguilar was in and out of the lineup for the Brewers as he struggled a little bit trying to recapture the magic he had two seasons ago. VR was an everyday guy in Baltimore a season ago. He's a high-energy guy. He's versatile. You could see him at third base on opening day. Maybe you see him at second base on opening day. He can play some outfield. He can play shortstop if need be. So if I had to pick one, he'd be the guy I single out. And the thing with VR is the the fact that he can play every position just makes him available. You know, any day you want to give somebody a rest, no matter what the position is. But with VR now able to play every position, the outfield is very full. He looks like he's probably going to play third, even though Brian Anderson's sure-handed at the hot corner. He, Brian Anderson's probably going to slide into a corner outfield spot, but he's great out there as well. Seems like VR's better in the infield anyways. Is that how you envision the Marlins going about it as the season starts? Of course, things change. Guys go down. Injuries happen. But does that make the most sense to you at this point, to have VR at third and Anderson in the outfield? My guess right now is that's the way the Marlins will start the season, but I'll throw one curveball at you. In the event Isan Diaz has a rough spring after he struggled in August and September last year, if the Marlins decide that maybe Isan would be best suited to start the year at AAA uh, and kind of get back on track as he was when he came up last year initially, in that case, you likely end up with uh, VR at second base instead of Isan, and you bring Brian Anderson back into the infield, put him at third base, which helps ease up a little bit on that outfield logjam, which you mentioned. There are so many outfield candidates on this team. You talk about Brian Anderson and Corey Dickerson. As you sit here today, two players you expect to be in right field and left field to start the year. Uh, you've got Lewis Brinson. You've got Monte Harrison. You've got Magnarese Sierra, who finished strong last year before his injury. You've got Matt Kemp coming into camp as a non-roster invitee. You've got Harold Ramirez, who did such a nice job as a rookie last year. At the end of last season, who would have envisioned a scenario where Ramirez has his work cut out to make the team even? But you look at that, and then you say, wait a minute, you've also got John Birdie as a utility guy who can play in the outfield if need be. You've got Garrett Cooper, who plays first base, can play some right field. And uh, if Aguilar gets going, you might need Cooper to get some at-bats in the outfield. So those are a lot of outfielders, and they can't all be on this team on opening day, even with the 26-man roster coming in 2020. So those are good problems to have, certainly. But, uh, you know, one scenario where you ease that logjam up a little bit would be if Isan were to scuffle this spring and start the year in AAA, you could move Anderson into third base and put the at second. And with Isan last year, of course, saw some flashes of the home run off of DeGrom. He showed the ability to drive the ball the other way when he was, was hitting the ball well. But overall, it just seemed like he just was – overmatched I guess is just the best way to put it was quickly getting into pitchers counts and falling behind 0-1 0-2 that selective approach seemed to not work as well that worked really well for him in AAA in the PCL what stood out to you with Eisen Diaz did you think it was just a little bit of a learning curve what, what was the deal did he not get enough of a chance to really you know get his feet under him since it was just such a short little stint in the back end and do you think he can be a bounce-back candidate next year? How concerned are you from what you saw? Well, you know, they ran him out there for six, seven weeks just about every single day, so he had the chance to play. It's not like he was in and out of the lineup. Uh, you know, the bottom line is most players struggle when they first come up to the major leagues. You wish everybody could be Ronald Acuna Jr. or Juan Soto or somebody like that, uh, and it would be great if some of the young players we've been talking about come up and are Acuna or Soto or somebody right out of the shoot, the way Jose Fernandez was. Uh, a lot of players come up and struggle, and, and I actually used this comp several times on the broadcast down the stretch last year. I was in Boston in 2006 when they brought up a very highly regarded prospect in AAA to play at second base, a kid named Dustin Pedroia. And he had a terrible last couple of months of the season. And he really struggled. And when the season ended, a lot of Red Sox fans wondered – is Pedroia really going to be the answer at second base? And then he was chagrined when he was out there on opening day in 2007. Now, based on the experience he had down the stretch, you know, he was able to really flourish in 07. He was the rookie of the year. He was a huge part of that team winning the World Series in 2007. In 08, he was the most valuable player in the American League. Uh, and you could argue he was even on a Cooperstown track before the injuries really set him back the last few years. Unfortunately, but I looked at the Dustin Pedroia experience I had back in 2006 into 07 as maybe some reason for hope 
with Isan. Now, every situation is different. The other thing I'll say about Isan that gives me hope is you can learn a lot listening to Don Mattingly talk. And if you really listen carefully uh, and kind of read between the lines when we talk with Donnie on a daily basis, and Donnie, a guy who knows a lot about hitting and knows a lot about being successful in the major leagues and what it takes, uh, he is a huge Isan Diaz fan. He really likes the approach. He likes the swing. He likes everything about it. And look, the bottom line numbers were what they were last year. But throughout Diaz's struggle, stand by him the way he did. And, uh, and not just to say it to, you know, try to uh, prop him up or make him feel better, but to sincerely mean it, even privately in talking with Donnie, uh, that gives me reason for optimism. Donnie is giving me one I have a huge amount of respect for, and he really feels like Isan's going to be a, a tremendous hitter and a really good player at this level. So uh, let's hope this year we see it. And the thing with Isan is he does not have to hit 300 to be productive at second base. He plays good defense. He gets on base a lot. He, he, you know, he walks a lot. He's got a sweet swing from the left side. You know he's going to hit 15 to 20 home runs. You can pencil him in for that if he plays a full season. I think regardless if he hits 220 or 260 or 280. Uh, so that for him, it's it's really just a matter of consistency. He doesn't have to hit 300. Uh, he he does everything else so well. And I think and maybe moving further back. Added- with some of the players you've added to the lineup this year, he doesn't need to hit mm-hmm. in the middle of the batting order. Either. Exactly. You can hit him seven. You can even hit him eight if you wanted to. But the lineup gets a lot longer when you add VR, you add Aguilar, and you add Dickerson, you've added Matt Joyce potentially in that lineup. Uh, it's a much deeper lineup than it was last year. So you don't, as you said, need Isan to be a superstar in his first full mm-hmm. big league season, if indeed this is his first full big league season. Uh, I think he's positioned uh, much better to have success in that lineup this year. Yeah, and that's the thing. He was batting early in the lineup a lot to to start his stint in the big leagues, and that's a lot of pressure for a guy that just made his way up to the bigs and didn't have much protection behind him. I think you know Brian Anderson and Miguel Rojas was pretty much it in the middle of the order in terms of mainstays, and Garrett Cooper when he was healthy. So that's and a, Anderson a, a got hurt big late year also. Exactly, and people forget that. And Anderson would have put up even better numbers if he didn't go down. I think he could have pushed for thirty home runs, and he's. I think a breakout candidate for me this year too, where you talk about the lineup being more loaded, the speed at the top with VR. And now you have Brian Anderson with more RBI opportunities. It could be exciting. The walls moved in a little bit Uh, with the outfield set up now too. What is your ideal outfield? I think you pencil in Brian Anderson now and Corey Dickerson. Of course, maybe Dickerson will sit out against a couple tough lefties here and there. And that's where you have the, perk of having the outfield depth but who who would you like to see in center field uh on opening day i ultimately later in the season could be a different answer but uh, for opening day who who deserves a shot out there in center for me the best case scenario is that monte harrison comes in has a tremendous spring he shows he's fully healthy after the wrist injury that cost him a lot last year uh that he takes off he flourishes he's in the lineup on opening day has three or four hits on opening day and never looks back. Now, that might be asking a lot from somebody who's never played a day in the big leagues and, again, had an abbreviated season because of a fractured wrist last year. Uh, I think in a perfect world, Harrison grabs that job around the throat and never lets it go. Uh, will that happen? Well, we'll see. He still has options, obviously. He can go back to AAA if, if need be. You've got Lewis Brinson with an option left. Obviously, the clock is ticking on Lewis Brinson. Uh, this has to be the year he has to show dramatic improvement. Everybody roots like heck for Lewis Brinson. As good a guy, as hard a worker as any of us have been around over the years, uh, a guy who, who through all the struggles, continues to put his head down and grind and look for answers. He hasn't found them yet. Hopefully this is the year. Uh, you know, what does he need to do in spring training after – two pretty good springs the last two years Mm -hmm. to convince you that things are going to be different this year. It's really hard to draw conclusions in spring training when playing time is sporadic, when the caliber of pitching you're facing is very up and down. Uh, So it's really hard to know if Brinson hits 450 and hits seven home runs in spring training. What does that really mean? Mm -hmm. How does that carry over when you get to opening day? You don't know. Uh, You've got Magnaris Sierra, who's an intriguing player for me. He was a different guy when he came up late last year as opposed to the player we saw down the stretch in 2018. It looked like he had really embraced the small ball game, using his speed, putting the ball on the ground, not in the air, dropping down some bunts. He's a terror on the base path. 
He's a great defender. He's also out of options, which gives you something to think about. Uh, he either needs to stay on the big league roster or you risk the potential of losing him on waivers if you try to outright him. Uh, I don't think he's a center field option at this point, but you got Matt Kemp in the outfield mix, remember. You saw Harold Ramirez some in center field last year. Ideally, defensively, that's not the best position for him. But for me, it probably, at this point, would come down to Sierra, Brinson, or Harrison uh, based on who is here right now. And, uh, you know, it's going to be very interesting. And here's another thing that I'll caution everybody on when you talk about these decisions. And we talk about it every spring. Who's the fifth starter going to be? Who's going to pitch the seventh inning, the eighth inning? Who is the open day starter in center field? It's a long year. And things change. And the guy who is your ninth starting pitcher coming out of spring training is likely to make a good number of starts for you before the season's over. And you use your depth. You use that whole 40-man roster. Uh, you might not be there on opening day, but that doesn't mean you're not going to be a big part of this team at some point. So, uh, you know, th- there's a lot to learn in Jupiter. And we'll be excited to see who's out there on opening day at Marlins Park. And that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story. And then people can take advantage of opportunities. And you hit the nail on the head on Brinson, just a likable guy, a guy that could really be a fan favorite if he puts it together and people just really want to root for him. So good with the glove too. And another guy, if he, he doesn't have to hit 300, if he could just hit all right, you know, 250, 260, 20 plus home runs, his glove will carry him and, and he'll still be a you know, three, four, one player potentially. So I really hope that he can, put it together. But like you mentioned, for the first time in a while, the Marlins have options. And that's whether it's pitching or outfield or infield, for the first time they have options. And I think another thing is for Jorge Alfaro is to have a guy like Francisco Cervelli working behind him and just to mentor him and and help him improve as a catcher because Cervelli's a pro's pro. And I'm excited to see how he handles the young pitchers as well. Uh, assuming he probably gets those Sunday day starts and some spot starts here and there. So the Marlins just all of a sudden just have so much more depth and they're a lot more exciting and a lot more options to try out if, if for whatever reason, one guy doesn't work. Why else? I mean, of course, the team is better on paper and you expect that to translate into more wins. But why else should people come to the park? We talk about Marlins attendance a lot. And that's always a big topic of discussion. And of course, something that's really important to this ownership to get the fan base rallied up again. It's not going to happen overnight, but they're making big changes to the stadium as well. Changes all around. Why, why should Marlins fans, or if they've kind of been distanced from the franchise the last couple of years, why should they go to the games this year? What's different? Well, I hope people are beginning to run out of excuses because you know, this is my 13th year here. And over the years, I heard all the excuses uh, and if they do this, I'll come to games. If they do that, I'll come to games. If they uh, if they build a new ballpark, I'll come to games. If Jeffrey Loria sells the team, I'm buying season tickets. If they keep their stars, I'll come to games. <laughs> so they gave Giancarlo Stanton the biggest contract in history. And they uh, locked Christian Yelich and, and Dee Gordon and things like that. People still didn't come to games. Uh, you know, here's the bottom line. You've got new ownership in year three now. Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter, they sat at their press conference on day one back in October of 2017, and they told you exactly what they were going to do. They, they had a plan. They laid it out. They said, we're going to make some unpopular decisions in the beginning, and they were true to their word in that regard. Uh, but you see that plan coming to fruition. On the field, certainly, uh, for people who follow this organization closely, you know what's been happening in the minor leagues. You see they're getting closer. Uh, if you were paying attention last year, you saw the ballpark improvements. They spent a lot of money on making Marlins Park an even better place to watch a ball game. And it is a great place to watch a game. I've been to every ballpark in baseball. Uh, there are some cities where I've been to two, even three different ballparks to watch games. I think I'm uh, around 60 ballparks in which I've seen Major League Baseball over the years. I've seen them all. And uh, for me, th- there are very few that compare to Marlins Park in terms of the convenience, the amenities, and Last year with the new concessions menus, better options, better pricing, the 305 menu. Uh, this year in recent weeks, we've heard about some of the new concessions opportunities and things they're doing to try to, again, make the experience more affordable. Ticket prices uh, have come down the last couple of years in many regards. So, you know, you, 
everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon when the team gets really good here in the next few years. But I would say it'd be more enjoyable to be part of the climb. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit better attendance-wise last year than it was the year before. Hopefully, just like in the win-loss column, there'll be a more sizable jump this year. And, uh, you know, they've reached out to people. They've gotten involved in the community, the ownership, the players themselves. And uh, at some point, you'd like to see this fan base in South Florida in general just kind of reach that hand back. And, and my point has always been, if you haven't been to a game in years, come to one game. If, if you go to three games a year, try to come to five games. Bring somebody with you who maybe hasn't been to a game in a while. Because I believe the Bulls are having had a really fun time. Uh, hopefully the Marlins win. They don't always. Hopefully they'll win more often this year than they have in the past. But but it's a fun way to spend a night or an afternoon, a weekend day, weekend night, uh, whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, you, you compare the price of going to a Marlins game to a lot of other entertainment options, certainly any other professional sporting event around town, even a lot of college sporting events around town. Uh, it's very affordable, relatively speaking. And uh, it's uh, hopefully this is going to be a year on the field and off the field. You see some really major strides for this franchise. And that's the thing, too, is, is you just want people to come out and see it because the stadium looks so much different. The options are cheaper. I know a big criticism across the MLB is just, you know, I, it's too expensive as a father or a mother to take my family of four to the game. I'm, you know, I can't afford it. Uh, and the Marlins have put a big focus on making the games more affordable. And I think that's a really good area to start. Uh, one last question I want to ask for you that comes from our mailbag, actually. Um, you, we talked about it off the air before, and you really you have everybody's dream job, right? You get to talk about baseball day in and day out, and uh, it's even more fun when the Marlins are good. But regardless, just the, just an incredible job to have. And a lot of people dream of being in your position. Uh, this our, our friend Ethan here, who listens to the podcast, is in high school, and he – wants to ultimately be where you are and he wants to know what he has to do to get there what recommendations you have I think he's off to a great start the fact that he already knows what he wants to do in high school Ethan that's good by you you're going to be way ahead of the curve but I'm sure there's some little nuggets that you can give Glenn that you maybe wish someone told you at that point sure it's a great question Ethan and uh, hopefully I can add a little bit of insight for you uh, the first thing I would say is the opportunities that you and other high school students and college students have right now are so dramatically better than uh, what they were when, when I was graduating from high school in the mid-1980s, going off to college. Uh, if you have any chance to get involved at your high school doing radio stuff, doing TV stuff, get as much experience as you possibly can, carry that into college, find a university uh, with a good student radio station, and a station where you get involved from day one, maybe you get a chance to do some play-by-play, host some talk shows, whatever it may be. Uh, that's how I got started at Northwestern, doing student radio, football, baseball, basketball, a Sunday night talk show, traveling with a lot of the teams, uh, and making a lot of mistakes, but that's how you get better. It's the kind of thing that if you want to do play-by-play, you don't learn how to do it in a classroom. You learn to do it by doing it over and over and over again. And in the beginning, especially making a lot of mistakes and uh, much deeper into your career, still making some mistakes, but hopefully fewer. Uh, you just got to do it. And even if that means going out to Marlins Park to watch a game and recording the play-by-play into your iPhone and going back and listening to it and seeing what you like, what you didn't like. Uh, in this day and age, it's so easy to turn on satellite radio or to go on your phone or on your laptop and listen to broadcasts from around the country. Don't only listen to your hometown broadcasters and people who, who you think you like and know and respect. Uh, listen to broadcasters all around the country. Hear as many different voices as possible. You'll hear things that you like. You'll hear things maybe you don't like, uh, things that you can apply to what you're trying to do, maybe things that you don't want to apply to what you're trying to do. But uh, listen to as many people who do what you're trying to do at a high level as possible, and and learn. And at some point when you get a lot more experience, uh, put a tape together when you have something you feel really good about. And I always encourage young broadcasters to reach out to people who are in the field, maybe people they they like, they respect. Uh, It's so easy now to reach people via social media and introduce yourself and ask if uh, you could send a tape of your work. And I I do this with young broadcasters all the time, particularly in the off-season. I spend a lot of my off-season doing this. Uh, and looking for constructive feedback. You just got to get out. You got to do it and take advantage of every opportunity you have in high school 
in college and put yourself in a position to come out of college with a really good tape and a chance maybe to get a job somewhere. And if I could give one little word of advice, Ethan, listen to Glenn. Of course, watch the the TV broadcasts, but radio broadcasts are are really tough as well because they're painting a picture without the video. And Glenn is a pro's pro, as good as it gets. And uh, right, clearly, you make, you make an interesting point. And if I have a second to, to take that yeah. a step further, uh, I'm 51 years old. I kind of grew up at the back end of people listening to baseball on the radio and having very little access to baseball on television. When I grew up in South Florida, you had the game of the week on NBC every Saturday afternoon. You had a Yankees game on Channel 6 back in the day on Tuesday night. But that was the extent of the baseball I watched on TV, but I listened on the radio every single night. And even if you think you want to work in TV, which in this day and age, most people do want to work in television uh, for reasons that are beyond me. I can't understand them. But uh, even if you think you want to work in TV, you've got to cut your teeth in radio because the description that's required on radio, the, the picture painting that's required on radio really prepares you to scale back when you get on TV, but the lessons you learn doing radio are so important. And it's a lot easier to go from radio to TV than it would be from TV to radio. So uh, get whatever experience you can, but do as much radio as possible because it is a different art form doing baseball or any sport on the radio than on television. And uh, for me, it's the ultimate art form and the, the ultimate fun. It's almost like a ballet trying to paint that picture. Uh, but, but do as much radio as you can, even if the ultimate goal is to end up on television. And you do a great job of painting that picture, Glenn. And I, I appreciate listening to you for the last, this is going to be season number 13. Hopefully it's lucky number 13. And I really appreciate you being the first guest on this podcast. It was a lot of fun having you on. And hopefully I can uh, talk to you again in the middle of the season or early in the season. And we'll have a lot of good things to talk about with this Marlins team. Yeah, Aaron, good luck with the podcast. I'm excited for you to start now with this. I'm honored to be your first guest and uh, be more than happy to come on again anytime and talk more baseball. That was Marlins radio voice Glenn Geffner. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Expect him to be on the podcast again at some point this season and expect plenty of other fun, exciting guests from around the Marlins and around the league throughout the season as we get closer to opening day. Please be sure to follow on Twitter at LockedOnMarlins to keep up with whoever the guests are and when the next show is coming out. And also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcasting app is to listen. And I hope you guys enjoyed the show again. Look forward to talking to you soon.